Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. In the spring of 1871, a young servant girl was found in the middle of the night, lying on the ground following a brutal attack that would eventually prematurely end her life. Following a series of fantastic police blunders, a suspect was arrested, tried and promptly acquitted. As far as the police were concerned, the murder had been solved, but the culprit had escaped the hand of justice, and as such, the case was closed and eventually buried, slipping into eventual obscurity. Almost 140 years later, that is where the case remains. But had the police been right in their suspicions of the suspected attacker, or did the murderer remain completely anonymous, escaping justice due to the tunnel vision of a ham-fisted police department? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 16 of Dark Histories. I hope everyone's doing well. I'm Ben, as always. This week, we're going to be doing a good old classic murder mystery from 1871, because I thought it had been a while since we'd done a, a proper murder mystery. Although, whether or not you think it's a mystery, I guess, well, we'll wait and see. Before we get into that, I want to say thank you to everyone who supports the show in all the ways you support it, and of course, all the patrons. Thank you very much. And all the new patrons this week, we've got Milovan, Sean, Amanda, JMH, Laura, Robert, Jack, Kathy, Shane, Sean, Stark Ironsides, Haley, Patricia, Brian and Sarah. So thank you very much for coming on board. It's super helpful. Aside from that, I think that's about it, really. Going to just crack straight into it. This is The Murder of Jane Clausen, The Elton Mystery. Throughout the 19th century, domestic maid was the second largest role of employment in England, only behind agriculture and employment figures. Though these numbers can be, and most certainly were, skewed, it's still true that maid and servants living among their middle-class masters were a feature of the era. Glamorised in shows like Downton Abbey, romanticised in fiction, or demonised in gothic horror as scheming murderers subtly poisoning their employers and escaping into anonymity, the true role of the domestic maid was far more mundane in reality and a role that consisted of incredible levels of hard work for little reward and little hope of social advancement, with only the promise of marrying into the life of a housewife on the horizon. Embedded deep within the family unit, whilst always relegated to the peripheries, the maid performed a difficult balancing act with great threats to those that slipped. The product of a rigid class system Working out the true status and average wage of a domestic servant in the 19th century is not entirely straightforward. There were no unions, and the labour force was vast and separate across the country. Efforts have been made by historians to estimate a wage, often quoted as around £10 per year, with data taken from newspaper advertisements, anecdotes, and vastly different records of household expenses. One of the most often mistaken stereotypes is that the master and household were of the rising middle classes, 
and the servant a member of the working classes. In fact, not everyone who hired maids and servants were middle class in the traditional sense. For many households, especially those of new money with certain aspirations towards gentility, the cost of domestic labour was only the loss of a small storage room, given that if one so chose to look, the labour could be found for close to no wage at all, if not entirely free. Scooped out of the workhouses, many women who found themselves down and out and on the bottom rung of society's underclasses were picked up by households to perform the role of a maid and given nothing more than a small room as board. The figures are further distorted by the number of women who placed their role of work as domestic, however were, in fact, normal members of working to lower middle class families living with relatives and performing average household tasks as part of their duty to the household, and more than a few were simply housewives. Overwhelmingly, however, the existence of an unrelated maid or servant in a household was seen within the public sphere to denote a certain social status. This held true throughout the 19th century, and even to a certain degree the early 20th century, right up until the First World War. Furthermore, census records, though not entirely reliable, do show a rise of the middle classes in Victorian England, holding a distinct correlation to the boom in the domestic servant workforce, whether they be paid or not. As such, the general public perception of a maid or servant in the Victorian household was undeniably one of status for the household owner, and both the employer and employee were expected to act in certain ways to one another, denoted by their class. For the domestic maid, the Victorian perception of women embodying the feminine ideal was no laughing matter. This unhealthy expectation of women and their perceived role in society included the running of the household and the execution of domestic work, from the preparation of food and the rearing of children, right down to the minutiae of the cleanliness of the skirting that bordered the Victorian living room. For a domestic servant, the importance of keeping up both the visage of idealism whilst respecting the class divide was of utmost importance for their success and respectability. Living amongst the family and closely within their personal space whilst ensuring one did not cross the line or stray from a strong sense of professionalism was one of the most important balancing acts a maid had to ensure they carry out, all the while under the ever-watchful eye of the master's wife, the household matriarch that no doubt owned or had read at least one manual that instructed her on how to properly scrutinise the servants. Every piece of work done should be expected by the domestic servant to be checked over, whilst any sense of privacy could be largely forgotten about, with even their possessions routinely inspected to be sure that they weren't stealing from the house, nor partaking in any unwanted behaviours. To be seen and not heard was a saying often directed at children, but it was a far more important mantra for a domestic servant, who, in anything but the very best conditions, were never considered as part of the family unit. It was, for the vast majority, an unbreachable hierarchy that ensured the class divide was never threatened. It wasn't until 1860 that beating a servant became illegal, and even after that, affairs and sexual harassment was commonplace, with the victim often pressured into silence and unlikely to be trusted, even if they did speak out. The consequences for those who failed to keep up with these intense societal pressures could be grave, seen as a fallen woman, those who slipped into alcoholism, unemployment or homelessness were written off and quickly sunk to the bottom of society with little hope of gainful employment or any other way out of the doss houses and workhouses 
other than to be scooped up by a household looking for free labour. More often than not, these women were seen by society to be on an inevitable path towards disease and a slow, inescapable death. A workplace romance, and even worse, an illegitimate pregnancy, whilst heavily romanticised in fiction, was viciously treacherous, creating scandal and sensation that inevitably cast suspicion and blame towards the female of the situation, and could often end in punishments by law. The pressures of domestic life were nothing short of intense, and often sat atop the shoulders of young women, often in their early teens, who were experiencing independent adult life for the first time, and trying to get to grips with a society that was relatively unforgiving in its views. Life wasn't always doom and gloom, however. For some domestic servants, the life of the maid had some benefits. One could expect to live in a better house than they were probably used to, with severe inner-city overcrowding in London at the time, even a closet or attic room in a grand terraced house might have been seen as somewhat of a luxury. On top of that, a responsible employer would extend the protections of his family, either through class, wealth or reputation, to his servants, and in the best cases, employers could play the role of surrogate families to their household staff. The list of occupancies for domestic servitude is long and diverse. Most common amongst upper working class and middle class households through the 19th century was that of the maid of all work. The maid of all work was, as the name implies, expected to do all the work of the house. A never-ending series of tasks that could range from nursing children to cleaning, washing and cooking. On top of all of this, the general running of household matters, stocks of coal, food and even the oil for the lamps would have to be tracked, stored, organised and bought. Lighting the fires in the morning would lead them on to preparing and cooking breakfast ensuring the coffee was stocked, sweeping the floors, washing the hearth, cleaning the grates, shaking out the curtains, dressing the beds, dusting the house, preparing lunch, dinner and supper, looking after the children, and on and on. It was, without doubt, one of the toughest positions available to any domestic servant, and one in which 16-year-old Jane Maria Coulson found herself working for the Pook family in the spring of 1871. The Pooks were, like many, a well-to-do and well-respected middle-class family that lived above their successful printer shop in Greenwich, London. Jane Clarkson's father had been a labourer working at the Deptford Docks on the Thames in south-east London. Married to Jane Elizabeth, the pair had three daughters. The eldest, Sarah Ann, had died of tuberculosis in 1863, survived by Jane Maria and her younger sister, Maria Cecilia. Three years after her sister's death, her mother too succumbed to tuberculosis which prompted her father to abandon his two living daughters two years later in 1868. It had been a harsh start to life for Jane, who had started work as a domestic maid at the age of 12, two years prior to her father's walking out, and was only now coming to grips with working adult life. After their father left, the Trot family, Jane's aunt and uncle on her deceased mother's side of the family, took over parenting duties to a degree acting as a surrogate to Jane and taking in the two girls, though, for the most part, Jane had been working as a living maid and as such lived independently for the most part. In 1869, she took up service with the Pooks at Three London Place in the heart of Greenwich. Ebenezer Pook was a printer whose work had seen him make a success of business. Living above their printer's shop just south of the River Thames in Greenwich, south-east London, the Pook family consisted of Ebenezer Pook, his wife, Mary, and their son, Edmund. 
Edmund, who was aged 20 in 1871, was the youngest of two sons and still lived at home whilst the elder, Thomas, had already married and moved out. Suffering from epilepsy, a condition poorly understood at the time, he lived close to his family and was referred to by his mother and father who watched him throughout the day and nursed him through his sporadic seizures as something of a homebody. For Jane, it was probably a rather middling position of work, not too overbearing and a relatively small, quiet household. She worked there for two years without incident and in complete anonymity. This, however, would all change over the coming months as spring turned to summer and the tragic story of which she was to take the starring role would unravel in the streets of Greenwich, spilling over to the national press. It was around 4.15am on the morning of Friday, April 26th, 1871, when police constable Donald Gunn stumbled across a pile of rags lying in the middle of the footpath whilst walking his beat through Kidbrook Lane. The lane was a muddy, rarely used footpath that ran from Well Hall in the southeast and carved through fields to Kidbrook Green on the border of the City of London in the northwest. Lined with hedgerows, it was pitch black at 4.15am, with no moon in the sky and the sun not rising for another 30 minutes. Constable Gunn's beat had taken him along Shooter's Hill, southwest to Eltham, and then back north, passing along Kidbrook Lane. He had passed the same spot two hours prior and not noticed a thing. On such a dark night, he couldn't be sure if the pile of clothing had not been there or he had just walked right past. As he drew closer, he saw that what he thought were a pile of discarded clothing or rags was in fact the body of a young woman lying on her front, moaning piteously. Expecting it to be that of a drunk, he called out to see if she was okay and when no reply came, he reached down to turn her over and asked her what she was doing. This time, a frail voice broke the silence of the dark lane. Oh, my poor head, the woman repeated over and over, her voice breaking. As he flipped her round, Gunn noticed that she had blood on her cheek, and as his focus sharpened and he inspected the girl's face more closely, he realised the true extent of her injuries. There were deep gashes in her head, her left cheek was split open, whilst her right eye socket was entirely smashed giving way to a hole in her head above what should have been her right eye that exposed her brain. As the horror of the situation dawned on the officer, the woman asked him to take her hand before falling forwards back onto the muddy footpath. Her voice slipped off into the silence. Gunn picked her up and placed her by the side of the path before running off to the nearby farmhouse of Manor Farm to call for help. Once he reached the farm, Gunn came across a stroke of luck when he bumped into his sergeant, Frederick Haynes, who had been running surprise inspections of the local beats and just so happened to be there to check in on Gunn. After Gunn told him of his discovery, Haynes went to the location of the injured woman whilst Gunn went on to the station in Eltham to organise for a stretcher crew to carry the lady to hospital. When Haynes arrived, he noticed a large pool of clotted blood four feet from the woman, as well as a series of footprints in the soft ground that seemed to show signs of a recent scuffle. Laying on the ground around the area, he found a pair of women's gloves and a black bonnet embroidered with red roses. Assuming they belonged to the injured victim, he took them as evidence and then waited for Gunn's return. With the clotting of the blood, Gunn theorised the attack must have taken place four or five hours previously, at least before midnight. When he returned with a crew of officers, Haynes led the group 
who carried the woman on a stretcher to the home of the police surgeon in Eltham, whilst Gunn took over guard duty waiting at the scene. The police surgeon, Dr David King, didn't have to spend much time examining the woman's injuries before realising that there was little that he could do at home, and instead he directed the woman to be taken to the local hospital, which Haynes arranged via a cab. Upon her arrival at Guy's Hospital, the house surgeon, Michael Harris, and the house physician, Frederick Durham, did all they could to clean her wounds and make her comfortable. Throughout, they noticed defensive wounds on the backs of her hands and arms and counted over a dozen wounds to her head, most of which were situated on the front, whilst there were a few on the back. Under the surgeon's light and with the wounds cleaned, the true extent of the injuries became tragically clear. She had suffered from a large blow that had smashed her temporal bone and lacerated her brain. A three-inch gash above her right eye with the skull and eye socket broken inwards. Her upper lip was sliced and her jawbone broken in several places. She had recent bruising on her right thigh, though there were no signs of any sexual assault. As they removed the shattered skull from the wounds, the surgeons theorised that she had suffered a brutal frontal attack and then, once collapsed onto the ground, had been hit about the rear of the head several more times. Whilst the wounds had been cleaned and dressed as best they could be, the woman was placed into a hospital bed, though, realistically, neither surgeon had much hope in her recovery. They told police all the info they could deduce about the attack, including that they estimated the woman's age to be between 23 to 25 years old. A police guard was placed in her room just in case she roused enough to give any information on her attacker though she had been in an unconscious state since her journey to the hospital, where she had only woken once, calling out, I'll save me, before falling back into silence and slipping off into a coma. Whilst in the hospital, Sergeant Haynes catalogued her clothing and possessions. She had worn a dark chocolate dress with off-white petticoats and a black woolen jacket trimmed in mohair and lace. She had a common-looking brooch pinned to her jacket and in her pockets, Haynes found a small blue purse containing 11 shillings and fourpence, two small keys, a handkerchief and a small, empty silver locket. Whilst the possessions didn't include any form of ID and nothing much for the police to go on, they did at least rule out random robbery as a motive. Haynes arranged for the clothing to be sent to the chief station in the neighbouring borough of Lee, where they could be displayed for the purpose of hopefully finding an ID for the victim whilst the rest of the effects were taken to the station in Eltham before he returned to the scene the following lunchtime. Back at the scene of the attack on Kidbrook Lane, Haynes found a much more active landscape than he had seen the previous night. The entire vicinity had been swarmed by local officers who, in their hurry to help, had destroyed any likelihood of making casts from the footprints in the mud. Doing his best to find out all he could from the fading prints, he followed a deeper series of footprints northwards towards Little Kid Brook, a small river that ran alongside the lane, where he found a few small drops of blood on a stone by the bank. Though, for some reason, he failed to mention this in any official reports at the time, and the evidence was never collected. The cluster of officers who had begun searching the scene further confused matters by collecting evidence that they then went on to either mislay entirely or hand in to various officers at the station with some being entered into the evidence book, whilst others were just dumped in cupboards or drawers, quickly to be forgotten about. One example of this that would later prove to be reasonably important was the discovery of a small metal dog whistle found by PC Edwin Owens, 
partially buried in mud, 15 yards from the attack. Unsure of its importance, he handed it in to Sergeant Willis at the station at Lee. However, Willis failed to ever enter it into the evidence book and placed it into a cupboard where it would be promptly forgotten until Haynes later retrieved it once learning of the find from Owens. That night, Willis would do the same with a stained rag brought into Eltham Station and forwarded to Lee by Thomas Lazell, a resident of Kidbrook Lane who had been handed it by a farm labourer earlier that morning. He had taken it to the officers at the scene of the attack earlier in the day where he told them how he had come to possess it. The previous night, Lazell had been visiting his father who had been suffering from gout. Upon his return home, he bumped into a farm labourer by Kidbrook Lane though Lazell knew the labourer to look at he was unsure of his name, but the man had told Lazelle about the attack and handed him a small square of blue cloth that he had found on the ground. The cloth was roughly torn, and though the labourer had assumed it was a handmade handkerchief, Lazelle himself thought that it was perhaps a simple dusting rag. Blue in colour, it was covered in stains that both men thought to be blood stains, and so Lazelle endeavoured to hand it into the police. After the officers at the scene had shown little interest in the dirty rag, he took it to Eltham Station after he finished work, where it was then sent to Lee, only for Willis to once again assume it was reasonably innocuous. Just like with the dog whistle, he tossed it into a cupboard and didn't bother himself with the trouble of entering it into the evidence book. By the next day, the brutality of the crime had deemed it important enough to involve Scotland Yard. Detective Inspector John Mulvaney took charge of the case, along with local officer Superintendent James Griffin. That evening, Thomas Brown, a gardener working at Morden College, visited his neighbour with a curious find that he had picked up from his flower beds in the afternoon. Morden College, a care home for residents of Blackheath, was a large brown brick building that sat adjacent to Kidbrook Lane. Built in the late 17th century by philanthropist Sir John Morden, the manor house was established as a home for poor merchants who had suffered work accidents and were since left unable to generate a living. Brown had been watering his flowers when he had chanced upon a 16-inch plasterer's hammer lying half-buried in one of the beds, and having heard of the attack and seeing signs of blood on the handle, he immediately assumed its importance. His neighbour was Thomas Hodge, the sergeant of the Greenwich Division of the Met Police, but when Brown had visited, he was told that Hodge was sleeping, and so he handed the hammer over to Hodge's wife, who passed it on at 9pm that evening. The hammer looked to Hodge as though it had been washed, but he too saw the bloodstains on the handle and decided to take it to Lee Station immediately, where Mulvaney took care of it along with a dog whistle which he had since uncovered without the help of the evidence book. Just as Brown and Hodge had initially presumed, the hammer was an important find for the investigation. There was a group of plasterers working only a quarter of a mile from the scene of the attack who would all need to be questioned. However, it looked to Mulvaney to have not ever been used, and so of more importance to the inspector was to find out where it had been purchased. Luckily, the hammer had been stamped with the maker's name, Jay Sorby, which meant that the police could track the suppliers, find which shops sold them, and then hopefully they could at least get a description of the buyer, if not a complete record of the sale. As it turned out, only a single shop in Greenwich sold tools made by Jay Sorby, a small independent store named Samuel Thomas's Mechanical Tool Warehouse, on the Deptford High Street. Officers were sent round to visit the shop, owned by Samuel Thomas and his wife Jane, though neither of the two remembered selling the hammer. 
The ledger was checked by the police, who found an identical hammer had been sold on the 22nd of April, but knowing the date did nothing to trip the memories of the shopkeepers, who both maintained that they knew nothing of the sale. Reaching a dead end after such a promising lead led the police to print posters on Sunday, which they pasted throughout the Greenwich district. On the evening of Saturday the 22nd of April, a man purchased a lathing hammer at the shop of Mr Thomas, High Street, Deptford. At the time he did so, two or three persons were in the shop, one of whom purchased a spoke shave. These persons are requested to communicate at once with Superintendent Griffin, Police Station, Blackheath Road, Greenwich. Pasting the posters throughout Greenwich that Sunday was timely, given that thousands of visitors who had read of the attack in the papers had chosen to visit the scene of the crime, flocking to view the grisly bloodstains and strip the site bare of any souvenirs that they could find. At the same time, they rendered the scene entirely useless to the police as a working crime scene. Throughout the weekend, the story of the attack slowly filtered out across the local papers. That same weekend, the body of a young woman had been found in the same vicinity. Much easier to identify, it was quickly confirmed to have been that of Anne Surridge, a 27-year-old servant girl from London. She was found floating in a small pond in Lee, and though at first the newspapers had a field day linking the two women together with fantastical stories, the inquest quickly found that she had drowned herself due to temporary insanity. Around the pond, where Anne's body had been found, the police also found a series of letters addressed to her, strewn about. Deducing from the letters, it appeared the girl had suffered a heartbreak and decided to take her own life. The story, whose mystery was soon resolved, only sought to further enhance the interest in the battered victim of the second Elton mystery. The comatose attack victim was put on display in the hospital in the hopes that someone might be able to make a positive ID. But though people came and the papers churned out rumours with several house owners, matrons and business owners speculating the victim could have been one of their servants, none came to any fruition and no positive identification was forthcoming. The early rumours in the papers did dovetail to a certain degree with the police investigation, which focused on the nearby Woolwich Arsenal. The army base had something of a reputation and though a soldier was arrested, he was quickly released when it became apparent that he had no link to the crime whatsoever. The papers took it a step further, printing articles that suggested a sergeant from the Scotch Regiment had been seen walking along Kidbrook Lane with a young woman on the night of the attack and went as far as saying that the battered victim had woken in hospital several times, screaming, Don't murder me, Ned! Though the physicians on duty all swore on oath that she had not uttered a single word during her stay. That Sunday night at 9pm, the beaten woman succumbed to her injuries, which had, as always suspected by the surgeons, been far too great for much to have been done to save her life. A post-mortem was carried out, where a new twist to the tale was discovered. The woman had been two months pregnant at the time of the attack. With the investigation turning into a murder case, with no leads to follow, the police placed an official description in the papers in the hopes that someone may, at least, be able to recognise the clothing of the young girl and lead them to a positive identification. Aged about 25 years, hair brown, 5 feet 3 inches in height, dressed in a chocolate ribbed barege dress, black cloth jacket trimmed with black silk braid, crochet work round neck, black lace bonnet with three red roses in it. The description was read by William Trott the following day, 
who recognised it instantly. The clothing, he thought, was surely that of his niece, Jane Maria Clausen. However, the description stated the victim to have been 25 years old. His niece was most definitely not that old. She had, in fact, turned 17 just days before. Jane, he knew, had worked as a servant in Greenwich, but he soon found out that she had left her place of work abruptly three weeks prior to the attack. He himself had last seen Jane the week before, on Sunday, when she had come round for tea. During her visit, she had told William's daughter, her cousin, that she was planning to alight with her lover, the son of her ex-employer, Edmund Pook, and soon marry. Apparently, she had been seeing Edmund Pook for some time. She had told both her cousin and aunt the story, and all about how he had given her a small silver locket, which she had carried with her in her pocket. Though the ages did not match up, the description of the clothing had been uncanny, and so William, along with his wife, visited the station to ID the body that midnight. They took with them recent photos of their niece, along with a strip of lace that had been sewn into her jacket collar. When they arrived, they informed the police of her address, and officers were dispatched to 12 Ashburn Road, where Jane had been living since leaving her position as servant, though they found that she had been missing since the Tuesday prior. No one in the house had felt much concern, as Jane had often gone to stay with her aunt and uncle, and so no alarm had been raised. The next morning, Monday the 24th of April, Mulvaney and Griffin took the trots to the hospital, where the grim line of coincidences was confirmed for the trots. Though her injuries made the identification difficult, it was unmistakably the body of their 17-year-old niece, Jane Maria Clausen. Their niece had a birthmark which was checked and quickly found. The bad news for the trots did at least give the police something tangible to follow up, and before they left the hospital, William handed a recent photo of Jane to the police to assist them in the investigation. The police's first step was to visit the home of Jane Clausen, where they interviewed all the other residents. This line of inquiry dug up several important pieces of information. Foremost was the news that the landlady, Fanny Hamilton, had spent time with Jane on the evening of her attack, when Jane had accompanied her on errands. Jane had left Fanny at 6.45pm that night, on account of her having plans to meet Edmund Pook at 7 on Crooms Hill. The meeting was important, she had told Fanny. Edmund and her were meeting to make big plans. Though what these plans were, she was unsure. The police, who had heard from the trots previously that Jane had been planning to alight with her lover, immediately put two and two together, rocketing Edmund Pook to the top of their suspect list. Before the newspapers could print James' name as the victim, Mulvaney and Griffin decided it best to visit the Pooks and speak with the family. If they could treat the matter sensitively, they thought it might be possible to get Ebenezer Pook on side to aid in a confession from Edmund. Their hopes were quickly dashed when, upon their arrival, Ebenezer, who had been shocked to discover the victim of the Elton mystery he had read about in the news, was his ex-servant, went on to deny outright that his son could have had any connection to the murder whatsoever. Edmund suffered from epilepsy, he told the police, and as such, he was under constant watch from himself and his wife. He was quite sure that his son could simply not have been involved without their knowing. Jane, he told police, was a slovenly girl, a point that he had told her outright the day that she had left her position. This was an opinion shared by Edmund, who, once police questioned the young man regarding the attack, told them that far from planning to alight with Jane, 
He thought her a dirty girl. On the night of the attack, Edmund told police that he had left work at seven and then walked on to Lewisham to meet a lady. Unable to meet with her in the end, he told police that he stayed in Lewisham to watch the home of the woman for 40 minutes before returning home to Greenwich at around 9pm. It wasn't the most solid of alibis, though it was confirmed by the eldest Pook's son. Although the police had no warrant for an official search, Ebenezer did allow them to check Edmund's clothes, and they asked him to show them all the clothes that he had been wearing that night. Edmund showed the police his trousers, but could not find his shirt, which he assumed had been sent to wash. The maid was summoned, and the shirt soon found, where police found a small bloodstain on the right cuff. This, Edmund explained, had come from a cut on his left hand, and must have gotten onto the cuff as he had crossed his hands at some point. It was very little to go on, but still, the police decided it was enough, and they arrested Edmund on suspicion of murder. The entire time that he had been questioned and then arrested by the police, Edmund had remained totally calm, and when it came time for them all to leave, he willingly agreed to be taken into custody. The arrest of Edmund Pook had been a bit of a stretch by the police. At this point in the investigation, the only shred of real evidence that they had on the young man was the blood stain on his shirt cuff, but it had yet to be analysed in any way and was of such small quantity it was somewhat tenuous. All other evidence had revolved around little more than gossip and hearsay. Stories of Edmund's womanising were apparently plentiful as the police heard from Jane's aunt and uncle of how he and Jane had planned to marry, but also from others that Edmund had been seen walking with girls of similar class to Jane. It appeared, despite what Edmund's family had told police, that Edmund was a homebody under their close scrutiny due to his epilepsy was perhaps not entirely truthful. For the investigation into Edmund to continue, the police first arranged for a lineup and called for Jane and Samuel Thomas of the tool shop to see if they could trip their memories into remembering selling the hammer to Edmund. It was perhaps too high a hope. Jane walked out of the room after not making any identification at all and promptly fainted, whilst Samuel too gave no positive ID of Edmund. The Pooks, on the other hand, outraged by the treatment of the police for taking their son into custody off the back of such flimsy evidence, employed the service of lawyer Henry Pook, who, by sheer coincidence, shared their surname despite being of no relation. The following day, the magistrate's court saw just how flimsy the police evidence had been. In the hearing, the prosecution was woefully underprepared, whilst the police laid bare their lack of evidence. They had a bloody shirt, or maybe they didn't. They had no analysis as yet. Maybe if it was blood, it had come from a cut on Edmund's hand. All their witnesses had been told various rumours about Edmund and Jane's relationship, but was any of it the truth, and did anyone actually know anything for certain about the pair's meeting? Maybe not. Henry Pook jumped on the back of the police immediately, declaring the entire affair a sensational drama. The magistrate, who tended to agree with the outraged lawyer, decided that the police had no evidence whatever to link Edmund with the crime and gave them five days to come up with something more solid. Following the hearing, Edmund was taken to Kent County Jail in Maidstone, 30 miles away, and given no bail. It had been a woeful start from the police and matters were not about to get any easier for them. Among the rumours that had circulated and found their way to the police through the witnesses was the story that Edmund had been seeing another young maid at the same time as Jane 
named Mary Smith. Mary, as it turned out, had also apparently gone missing. However, police soon found her in Tottenham, where she had returned home to live with her family after growing tired of her domestic position. During her questioning, she told the police she knew nothing whatsoever about Edmund, nor his relationship with Jane. The inquest into Jane's murder was held two days later on the 4th of May at Guy's Hospital. The police were forced to awkwardly trot out the same old lack of evidence that they had previously during the magistrate's hearing, at least until Jane Prosser took the witness stand and gave testimony that she had been told three months prior to the attack by Jane that she was pregnant with Edmund Pook's baby. The post-mortem had found Jane to be pregnant and rumours had all pointed in the direction of Edmund being the father, but it wasn't until Jane Prosser gave her testimony that anyone had anything concrete linking the two. As bombastic as it was, it was still, however, only more hearsay. Further witness testimony came from Thomas Lazell, the man who had turned the dirty rag into police, who swore he saw Edmund Pook walking between Kidbrook Lane and Morden College on the night of the attack with his arm around the waist of a young woman. Henry Pook was, as usual, furious at this evidence, which he deemed more rumour and guff, though he must have known that despite being right on the fact that it was only hearsay, it was incredibly damaging for Edmund's case. The inquest next heard the results from the blood analysis that had been conducted by Dr Henry Leatherby, the Chair of Chemistry at the London Hospital and Medical Officer of Health for the City of London. Dr Leatherby had used stereoscopic analysis on the stains both on the clothing of Edmund and the hammer and concluded that the stain on the shirt sleeve was that of mammal blood, the limit of the distinctions able to be made for the time, and that the same was on the hammer. He also had found strands of hair on the hammer, which she had found closely resembled those cut from the head of Jane. Damning for Edmund, Dr. Leatherby had made one more discovery in the form of a single strand of hair on Edmund's trousers, which resembled both previous samples. However, he was later forced to admit that the hair could well have been on the clothing for up to a month. Henry Pook then brought to attention an article in The Lancet, a well-known and respected medical publication that had published an article doubting the confidence of spectral blood analysis, though the article itself was rejected as evidence. The inquest was remanded for a week, and at the end of the day, Henry Pook met with Mulvaney and Griffin to introduce them to a man named Henry Humphreys. Humphreys, he told the police, had given Jane the silver locket, not Edmund Pook. This news was a serious derailing for the police investigation, and went on to prove just how flimsy the evidence they held surely was relying as it did on so much hearsay and rumour. A week later, on Thursday the 11th of May, the inquest resumed. The police trotted out three new witnesses, all of which claimed to have seen a man and a woman in or near Kidbrook Lane on the night of the attack. However, none of the three new witnesses had been given the opportunity to ID Edmund. Given the fact that Edmund had not been permitted to attend the inquest, no ID could even be gained at the hearing, so... Their testimonies were eventually all but useless. The only other point to note was that Henry Pook challenged the blood analysis by Dr Leatherby, attempting to downplay the importance of it, given that it could do little more than confirm that the blood was that of a mammal. He then went on to explain that the blood had gotten onto the sleeve from when Edmund had had an epileptic fit and bitten his tongue a few weeks before the attack. With little else discovered, at the end of the day, the inquest was once more delayed. 
The following week saw more blunders on behalf of the investigation. Firstly, the Thomases back in the tool shop found a second entry in the sales ledger that showed another hammer that matched the one found in the flower bed had been sold at an earlier date. However, since neither Jane nor Samuel Thomas had been called to the inquest, the police failed to learn of this new information. A lineup was organised for the new witnesses, but two were unable to give any identification at all, whilst three further witnesses did claim to identify Edmund Pook. The problem was that by now, the Illustrated Police News had published a portrait of Edmund alongside an article on the murder case, and one witness knew Edmund Pook previously anyway. The inquest resumed for the third time on the 16th of May, and this time Samuel and Jane Thomas were called to give testimony. Here they unveiled the news to the police that they had discovered a second sale of a matching hammer in the ledger. This outraged just about everyone involved. The prosecution demanded to know more, warning the Thomases to be careful as the police had been operating their investigation under a false lead entirely of their making. The defence rumbled complaints that the police were browbeating witnesses, but it was all for nothing because, unfortunately, Thomas knew little more about the sale than he had the first. The only thing he could actually say about it was that it had sold for two pence more than the second hammer, though he was unsure why. Perhaps, he guessed, his wife had sold it. Jane was then asked, and she was, once more, entirely clueless about the sale. The next witness was Alice Durnford, Edmund's supposed sweetheart, and the woman that he had told police he had gone to see on the night of the attack, though he had been unable to actually meet her. Alice told the hearing that Edmund had often stood outside her house and called to her using a dog whistle, though when she had last seen him, two days after the attack, he had not had the whistle. Mulvaney promptly unveiled the whistle found at the scene of the attack, much to the surprise of the defence, who had not seen any whistle in the evidence book, which led them to accuse the police of making the entire story up and of coaching witnesses. At the end of the day, the magistrate summed up the hearing for the jury, suggesting that, although he thought it all flimsy, the evidence of the hair on the hammer and the strand found on Edmund's trousers, along with the perception that the Thomases were not unable to speak of the hammer but rather refusing to speak on the matter, was enough to take the case to court. The jury exited the hearing for 35 minutes, where after they returned a majority of 16 to 8, that Edmund should be tried for the murder of Jane Clausen, committing him for trial. After the inquest, Edmund was moved to Newgate Prison, adjoining the Old Bailey, where he would attend court via an underground tunnel to avoid the baying crowds that swarmed the courtroom. In the days running up to the trial, Edmund Pook suffered an epileptic fit whilst in prison. Henry Pook, the lawyer, promptly fed the story to the press in the hopes that it might bolster Edmund's explanation of the blood stain on his shirt, a ploy which was successful enough, as articles were published that suggested that Henry Pook would use the fit as evidence in Edmund's defence. On 7th of June, Edmund attended court in the Old Bailey to oversee a date being set for the trial. The police, who still had little more evidence than they had shown at the inquest, sought to push back the date on account of a series of witnesses that they had lined up that they needed to seek out, one of the most important of which was Walter Richard Perrin. Perrin was a talented chap. Alongside managing his mother's livery stables, he drove a cab and was the master of ceremonies for the Golden Lion Music Hall in Sydenham. He came to have known Edmund Pook as a colleague when Edmund had tried his hand as an entertainer. 
As a witness, he told police that he had been buying a pack of nails in the Thomas's tool shop on the night the hammer had been sold and that he had bumped into Edmund Pook outside. He had stopped to chat to Edmund and then shortly after, witnessed through the shop window Edmund actually purchasing the hammer. Edmund disagreed categorically, claiming that he had never met Perrin in his life and certainly not outside the tool shop. In an effort to straighten it out, police later asked to see the nails that Perrin bought that night and when he produced them, it turned out that they were a brand that the Thomases did not even stock. Still, this was all to be discovered at the time, and so police granted an extension to the police of six weeks, and the date of the trial was set for July the 12th. The six weeks was not wasted by the Pooks, who spent the time seeking out their own witnesses for Edmund's alibi, of which they claimed to have found three who could all testify to have seen Edmund waiting outside the home of his sweetheart, in Lewisham at the time that he was claimed to have been meeting Jane Clausen. As the trial approached, public further for the entire affair reached its peak, when, on Sunday May the 29th, over 20,000 people visited Kidbrook Lane, making it the country's third highest tourist attraction, behind only the Crystal Palace and the International Exhibition at Kensington. The trial of Edmund Pook opened as scheduled on the morning of the 12th of July, 1871, to great public interest. It was deemed exciting enough that it even attracted the attention of the Lord Mayor of London, who was in attendance, along with great throngs of the public, who, being able to fit in the courtroom, stood outside, waiting for news. The trial lasted for four days, and focused mainly around the hearsay evidence gathered by the police. In their opening, the prosecution pushed a line that, although the evidence held against Pook was largely circumstantial, it should be considered as a whole by the jury. The greater picture, they suggested, was damning enough. Obviously, this allowed an opening for the defence, who capitalised on this weakness, playing it all down as little more than idle gossip. The trial did not fare particularly well for the prosecution from the start. At first, they attempted to paint Edmund as something of a womaniser, pointing out all the witness testimony that seemed to suggest he had been seeing several young women at once, and they read letters to the court written by Edmund to his cousin, who he had been proposing marriage to. Later, however, Constable Gunn, the beat officer who had found Jane Clausen on the night of the attack, admitted that he had not seen her earlier on in the night due to the fact that he had not actually followed his regular beat and gone off on a completely different path, leaving the lane completely empty for several hours. The prosecution was also forced to admit that the locket that they had been led to believe had been given to Jane by Edmund was in fact given to her by a completely different suitor. The first day closed with the most crushing blow to the prosecution when the witness testimony of Fanny Hamilton, who had told police that she had been with Jane before the attack and who told the police that she was to go and meet Edmund that night, was thrown out as evidence for being inadmissible gossip. The second day saw the police trot out over 30 witnesses, all who tenuously linked Edmund Pook with the murder, the weapon or the scene, though as each one came out, the prosecution were forced to admit one by one that only four of them had been actually able to give a positive identification of Edmund, one of which had seen his portrait in the Illustrated Police News prior to carrying out the police lineup. Perrin was then next to take the stand, where his testimony of meeting Edmund outside the tool shop was promptly torn apart by the defence in cross-examination when they pointed out 
that not only did his entire tale seem to be a complete fiction and hold no hard evidence, his own timings were completely off in comparison to all other witness testimony. The defence then brought in a witness who told the court that Perrin had told him in a pub that he had not actually met Pook at all and that his story had been a complete work of nonsense. He was eventually removed from the dock after the defence declared to the court that it was a farce to ask this man any more questions. The dog whistle was then brought into the fray and so too was the fact that it was not entered into evidence for three weeks until after it had been found, which the defence claimed to be due to police manufacturing evidence. With that, the second day closed and once again, the prosecution and police were forced to leave with their tail between their legs. The third day opened as the first two had ended and saw the evidence brought up as a dirty handkerchief handed into the police station on the morning after the attack by Thomas Lazell. Since the rag had never been entered into the evidence book, it was naturally understandable that no one else in the courtroom had even heard of it, much to the anger of the defence and the judge who called for Lazelle to be summoned immediately to explain the situation. The entire Greenwich division of officers was then dragged into the courtroom for Lazelle to point out who he had spoken to on the morning he had handed over the rag and that policeman was then put into the witness stand himself where he told the court that he just hadn't thought that the rag to be of any importance. Furthermore, the stains on the rag had never been analysed. As far as he was concerned, he thought the rag to be unconnected to the crime entirely and just a dirty piece of rubbish. All told, it had been another damning day for the prosecution. The closing speeches of the prosecution once more reiterated that the blood evidence found on the clothing, which was really their strongest and only real piece of evidence, as strong as the police thought it was, Edmund's brother stated that the blood could have come from any number of places. Firstly, he suggested Edmund's epileptic fits, though it was questioned how blood had gotten on the rim of his hat from a bite to his own tongue while staying at home. Evidence was then given that Edmund had dressed the wound of a customer in the shop earlier that week who had injured themselves on their premises and of his own cut on his left hand. All three examples, the defence suggested, did not go against evidence supplied by Dr. Leatherby in his analysis that the blood could have been from just about anyone and anywhere. Before their own closing, the defence brought out three witnesses, all of whom claimed to have seen Edmund at the time of his supposed meeting with Jane, though, in finding said witnesses, it turned out that Henry Pook had not been so shy at cutting corners himself, as all three had identified Edmund via a makeshift lineup that saw the lawyer produce a photograph of Edmund Pook mixed in with a series of older photographs of random people for them to make their selection. At 8.40pm on the fourth day of the trial, the jury were let out to make their deliberations, which lasted for 20 minutes, before they returned to make a confident decision of not guilty. As news of the outcome spread outside the court, people in the streets cheered, while those in the courtroom itself applauded the outcome. It was the end of a disastrous investigation and trial for the police, and the papers made sure that everyone knew as such. Articles lambasted them for their sloppy work, whilst the characters of witnesses were assassinated left, right and centre. Given the cheering outside the courtroom and the tone in the newspapers, one might think that the public opinion was on the side of Edmund Pooh. However, the situation was far more complicated, and as usual, found itself divided down class lines. Crowds of working-class protesters made their way to the Pook's house 
jeering and shouting at the family for evading justice, and they continued unabated for several nights running. Ebenezer and Henry Pook saw fit to vent their anger at the police for doing nothing to halt the situation, whilst police largely watched on unconcerned, all the while the protests did not lead to violence or destruction of property. The aftermath of the trial saw both sides of the argument see themselves as victims, with those wanting justice for Jane Clausen turning their anger towards the Pooks. On the other side, those that stood firmly with the Pooks thought only that the police were to blame for a rushed, single-minded arrest and a ridiculous trial supported only by gossip and hearsay. For Henry Pook, the end of the trial saw the start of a lengthy series of legal battles where he sought damages against witnesses and police, though he rarely won, with many of the cases being thrown out entirely and those that did reach fruition pay meagre sums. One of the Pook's primary targets was Frederick Farrer, a publisher who had quickly produced and published a pamphlet on the case titled The Eltham Tragedy Reviewed. This pamphlet contained a narrative heavily suggesting that Edmund had gotten away with murder. Henry Pooks heavy-handedly attempted to shut the publication down and charged all those involved with libel, but eventually the lawsuit fell through. All the while this was happening, the police had largely forgotten the crime. As far as they were concerned, the case was closed. They knew who had committed the murder, but Edmund Pooks had escaped justice and so there was little more to be done. In the public sphere, the Pook Defence Fund raised £200 reward for the capture of the real killer, whilst the Farrah Defence Fund countered with raising their own £200 reward. All this drama and litigation on behalf of the Pooks, however, saw public opinion begin to shift away from the side of the Pooks, who were, as one paper put it, becoming a nuisance. Slowly but surely, the murder of Jane Clausen drifted off into obscurity, only to be revived periodically when people came forward to confess to the crime. This happened on several occasions, the first being just months later, in November of 1871, when a homeless man named Robert Sessions entered a police station and put himself up for the crime. Mulvaney investigated the confession himself and quickly found that the man had been recently discharged from the army on the grounds of insanity after he'd attempted suicide and the investigation was promptly dropped. This confession was repeated by a second serviceman in 1873 when soldier George Bingham confessed to the crime in writing. Police investigated the claims but found the story did not connect with Jane Clausen whatsoever and later Bingham admitted that he had concocted the story in an effort to get kicked out of the army. Once more, in 1880, the case was dug up again, this time seven years after Mulvaney had retired from the force, when Walter Thomas, a drunk, confessed to the murder one night after a drinking session. However, he quickly recanted his confession the next morning once he had sobered up. One last confession came from the other side of the world in 1888, when an Australian man named Michael Carroll confessed to the murder. His claims were investigated once more, but found to be a complete fiction, and the case was, for the last time, dropped into obscurity. Edmund Pooks went on to marry in 1881, four years after the death of his father, to a woman named Alice. The pair had a son in 1882, though he died aged only three and a half years old, and they had no more children following this tragedy. Edmund's mother died at the ripe age of 75 in 1899, and Edmund and Alice moved away from London in 1911, settling instead on the island of Guernsey, 
where he stayed until 1915, after which the pair moved to Jersey. Shortly after their island-hopping move, however, Alice died, and eventually Edmund Pook wound up back in London, where he lived as a widow until his own death in 1921, aged 70 years old. With the murder solved, as far as the police were concerned, the case of Jane Clausen was never officially seen as cold or unsolved, but were they correct in their assumptions, or was the anger of Henry Pooks for the police mistreatment of Edmund justified? The only hard evidence for the murder continues to be, until this day, the existence of the small spatters of blood on Edmund's clothing. Was it enough, combined with the hearsay, gossip and conjecture, to commit Edmund to the gallows? Either way, one way or another, we can only really say that in respect to Jane Clausen, justice was never done. Who that justice should have come down upon is a debate that is left to those who dig the story up 140 years on and mull over the details before leaving it once again to slip away into obscurity. That was the story of the murder of Jane Clausen and the Eltham tragedy or the Eltham mystery or the Eltham outrage. It's got several names that the papers kind of tagged onto it. But yeah, it's an interesting story. It was a weird, I'm not sure I'd call it like a full on murder mystery, but it was quite an interesting one. Uh, and we haven't done one for a while, so I wanted to kind of get one, you know, get one in the bag. Um, so yeah, we'll come back and talk a little bit about the absolute bungle of a case uh, after these short advert breaks thanks for listening to dark histories this podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support so in order to do that i need to run a few ads our longtime advertising partner is audible and the reason i've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that i actually use and enjoy myself And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android, and web app, and if you use more than one, They all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, You can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support dark histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. 
If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really, with options for $1, $3 and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So, yeah, interesting story. You have to be, it has to be said straight off the bat, what an absolute cock-up, just in all ways, shape and form. Like, it seemed that the police really only had one line of inquiry the entire time, and they just went straight for Edmund Pook and no one else. So in a way, you can kind of see from Henry Pook's perspective, the lawyer, that this was, you know, it was an obscene trial and it was an absurd. And why the police sort of pursued it so heavily with so little evidence. I mean, it was obviously never going to win. But I guess that's all they had. So because they had literally nothing else to go for. But they they put all of their energy and efforts into Pook. So... They had nowhere else to really, you know, they didn't even really look for any other evidence or any other line of inquiry. I have to say, I do think it probably was him. I think, I think, I think like the prosecution said, and and I might not say this if I was on the jury, I I can totally sympathise with the jury in this one because, you know, they they were dealing with a man's life hanging on their decision. You know, it, it was a big deal. But obviously not with that responsibility now. I, I kind of inclined to agree with the prosecution when they said that, that that you need to kind of step back and see it as a whole and look at all of the coincidences and hearsay and gossip and really form a picture around that with the blood evidence to sort of... But I mean, none of it. I don't know. I don't know. What a nightmare case to have been a jury on. It would have been horrible because the blood evidence is, is really quite damning I think in the sense that 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 it got a little bit more than on his shirt so I talked about it only being on his shirt but it was in a few other places he had some on the leg of his trouser and some on the brim of his hat but it was all very tiny specks so I didn't really mention it in the story because the stuff that was on his trouser leg was literally like a few pinpricks of blood like on his trouser leg and he had the same on his hat but where it is interesting is that He claimed to have the blood on his sleeve of his shirt from an epileptic fit from biting his tongue. And you can say, fair enough, maybe that happened. But if that's the case, how did he get it on the brim of his hat? Because if he had the epileptic fit when he was at home, why the hell was he wearing his hat? Or why why was his hat anywhere near him? Because he would have been laying on the floor, one would assume. So he shouldn't have any blood on his hat. It doesn't matter how much it's sort of on there. And really interestingly, there's 
two sort of, I think, big lines here, like lines of kind of doubt for me. And that's firstly, I read in the book, so there's there's a book about this case, and it's written by Paul Thomas Murphy, and it's called Pretty Jane and the Viper of Kidbrook Lane, A True Story of Victorian Law and Disorder. I'm pretty sure you can get it on Audible, and you can get it on, like, uh, paperback and Kindle. So it's definitely worth a read if you can get hold of it, because it goes a bit more into that. But the book is, is very much um, going down the path that it was Edmund. So the guy who wrote the book, 100%, is behind the idea that Edmund was the killer. And he very much like sums it up, like his conclusion of the book as Edmund as the killer. And he, he sort of focuses on the idea that, and it is an interesting point that he points out actually, um, that he makes, that he, he gave the police his hat and his trousers and his shirt, but he doesn't give them his jacket. So where the hell was his jacket? Um, and... Interestingly, it points out that most people assumed that the brutality of the attack meant that there wasn't enough blood on his clothing because the brutality of the attack was as it was, was like so high that he should have had more blood on his clothing. When in fact, that's not really true because if he'd have stepped away from it, it he only would have got spatter anyway, in which case the, the, that, the kind of flex on his trouser on, on the brim of his hat make a great deal more sense. And and I kind of tend to agree with that point. I feel like that's actually a damn good point. Um, and, and again, like, maybe he had more blood on his jacket, but where was the jacket? Why was it never found? Why was, why was this never really sort of questioned heavily in the court? It was sort of just like, oh, well, the jacket's not there, so don't worry about it. The rest of it, I thought, all that circumstantial evidence, say you can really sympathise with the jury on this one because as you're kind of hearing the evidence, you're thinking like, okay, so he normally carried a dog whistle, which I thought was a bit weird that he called to his lover with the dog whistle. Um, it's a bit rough, a bit harsh. But yeah, so he always carried a dog whistle and then he didn't have it after the attack. But they found one at the scene. I, I te- you, you think, well, that's a bit of a heavy coincidence. But at the same time, it was a kind of rural track where people may have been dog walking or training their dogs or whatever. It's not unlikely that it would have been there as well. Like When you, you see it as part of the story, you think, oh, well, it's obviously his whistle and he obviously dropped it. But then you think, crikey, like, as a jury, would you want to be the one that then sort of makes a definitive decision and kills this guy. I'm not sure I would have been. So it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because I think everything about me pretty much wants to say it was definitely him. Until you start sort of questioning it and thinking, well, maybe actually, you know, okay, how definite am I? Do I feel about that? And then you start noticing the cracks, you know, and you go, actually, I'm not definite at all. <laughs> like, it, it was all just hearsay and gossip. So, how can you prosecute a man based entirely on that? It was a complete bugger up by... It's just about everyone involved, basically. Like, every person involved in this was a complete nightmare. So the police bungled everything. The witnesses bungled everything. Henry Pook bungled everything from the sense side of the defence as well. I mean, it, he sort of almost can be seen to have played a blinder, if you know what I mean. But in fact, I think he pretty much 
just played and the police messed it up so much that it worked out well for him you know but he didn't really play a blind or anything so he just played he was almost he he didn't really it could have been anyone like they could have had the dog for a lawyer and i'm pretty sure they would have come up with the same outcome um but the lawyer was an absolute gem like what you get sort of more stories of him in the book say if you read the book it's it's really interesting um and they talk about Henry Pook being this really aggro lawyer who just got into fights all the time with the police and witnesses and stuff like this. He, I think he ended up in court himself twice just for um, just being aggro, basically. Um, so, yeah, so there, there, there's definitely more to read in the book if you want to get hold of it. But it's an interesting story. It'd be interesting to see what people make of it and, and what people, who they think it was. And if I'd be interested to know if you think you would have put him in prison would you be uh, like so willing to send him to the gallows on a bunch of evidence that consisted of essentially gossip and and, it, and you you see how bad that gossip gets when i think it was a really good point when henry pook introduced humphreys the middle-aged man having an affair with jane clausen who bought her the locket now jane had told her family that Edmund Pook had given her the locket. So the family, the Trot family, had told the police, oh, you know, she had a locket. Yeah, it was given to her by Edmund Pook. As far as everyone else is concerned, she was given to her by Edmund Pook. And then you think, right, and Edmund Pook was seeing her. This all makes sense. He gave her a locket. You know, supposedly they were going to be looking to get married. She was carrying his baby. Why would he not give her a locket? It all makes sense, right? But the reality is he didn't give her that locket. That was all just hearsay and it was all wrong. So that goes to show how flimsy the evidence really is. You know, it doesn't matter that in the greater picture it all makes sense. If it's not true, it's not true. And how do you know that? I certainly would not want it to have sent him to the gallows based on it. That's for sure. And, you know, the, the, the with the only evidence being the blood and the blood being so poorly analysed as it, you know, not at the time it wasn't poorly analysed. That was just all they could do, right? It's just a sp- uh, sp- um, spectral analysis, which essentially um, all it could tell you was if it was the blood of a mammal or not. Yeah, there was no such thing as DNA back then. I mean, obviously there was such a thing as DNA, but they didn't they didn't know about it. So there, there was nothing else you could gain from the blood other than tell, yes, it's a mammal. Um, it's the blood of a mammal Um, so you know outside of the age of the blood that was about it because they could you know once it had clotted they could say okay it's longer than six hours old or whatever that that was about it they didn't even really have like blood spatter analysis or anything like that there was a guy in in this story that cut that talks about blood spatter on the leg and stuff but that was remarkably forward thinking and it wasn't a science it wasn't like forensic science now it was it was very much like in its infancy, like blood spatter patterns. They, they, they were in their infancy, but that's all they were. So, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I um, thought it was a really interesting story. I thought it was another cool kind of obscure murder mystery that's sort of unsolved. I do think it was probably Pook, right? But I'm not sure I'd want to stake his life on it. So, on that respect, I can I can definitely sympathise with the with the jury. Um, I just think it just 
as you read it, you almost get so frustrated with the way the police handled everything or just everyone handled everything. It was a complete nightmare. It was a complete cock up from start to finish, really. But that was the story. So I hope you enjoyed it. I think probably this one will be a bit of a topic of conversation at the next live stream. So we'll talk about it more then. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening. As always, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you want to get in touch with me between now and then, you can do so at darkhistories.com. If you go to that website, you'll find all Twitter, Facebook, Instagram links. You'll also, I mean, if you just search Dark Histories podcast in any of those, you'll probably find us as well. Just keep an eye out for the butterfly and that's me. Um, And yeah, feel free to get hold of me there. You can also email me, um, contact at darkhistories.com and that comes straight to me. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. Say do get in contact if you like. If you'd like to support, that'd be amazing. Um, If not, no worries. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Stay healthy, stay happy, have a great sort of summer, I guess, because now it's basically turned summer in England. So like we've got our week of summer coming up. We've got a bit of a heat wave, so that'll last, what, week and then that'll be the end of that but yeah so enjoy the sunshine for the week uh if you're in england if you're not elsewhere enjoy whatever weather you're having i'll see you all very soon take care sleep tight